So grateful for your staff, for your pastors here. I know Steve is anxious to get back with you all, and just he's excited to be here with you next week. But I was so honored when he asked me to come and say a word of hope to you today. So I want to say hi to all of you. I also want to say hi to everybody who's worshiping with us online. I'm so glad that you've joined us as well. Can I pray for you before we dive into God's word? Holy Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for being with us not only today, but every day that you never leave, you never forsake. You're not in the business of leaving anyone behind. Thank you for Jesus, for all that he means to us, for your Holy Spirit, the presence that comforts us and guides us. And today as we come before you, I pray that you would open our hearts. We love to hear the sound of your voice, so make our ears ready to hear you today. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray, and everybody said, amen. Well, you may have heard the story of the pastor who was preaching the funeral of the church member Bobby Jones. Now, Bobby Jones was kind of your typical church member. There was nothing too extraordinary about him. There was nothing too mediocre about him. He was just kind of right in the middle. But Bobby had lived a good long life, and so the church had gathered to celebrate that life. And the pastor had gotten to the point in the funeral where he was preaching the eulogy, and he was saying all these great things about Bobby, how Bobby was so kind, so nice to everyone that he would meet, how he loved the Lord, and you could see it in all of his actions, and how he was always caring for those who were disadvantaged. But then, as the pastor was in the middle of the message, he noticed that there was a gentleman in the back row who was starting to fidget and get a little antsy. Then, as the pastor kept preaching, the gentleman stood up and kind of stepped out into the aisle, and began to walk down the aisle. I have a, it's, it's like an object lesson. He's coming down the aisle. <laughs> As he's coming down the aisle, he comes down and the pastor continues to preach while he's kind of keeping an eye on this gentleman. And the gentleman comes right down to the casket. And as the pastor is preaching, the gentleman looks into the casket at Bobby and then he looks up at the pastor and then he looks down at Bobby and he looks up at the pastor and then he just starts to shake his head. And finally, the pastor says, are you all right? Or, Can I help you? And the gentleman who'd walked down the aisle said, well, you were saying all these really great things about Bobby, and I thought maybe I was at the wrong service, so I just had to come see for myself because that doesn't sound anything like him. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? The age-old problem of humanity is life and death. Now there's a 100% chance that we're all going to die. We're all going to leave this body behind. We can't get out of it. There's no way around it. But sometimes we tend to think a lot about death, don't we? We wonder, what will our death be like? What will it be like when we cross from this life into the other life? Will we be surrounded by family? Will we be alone? Will we have a long drawn out? kind of suffering death, will it be quick and unexpected? I bet if you were to tell me the truth, every single one of you in here has had a thought about death. But I wonder if we would spend half as much time thinking about death as we do thinking about life. How much different things would be? How much different things would be if we thought about how we live? What is gonna be like when we get up tomorrow? What are we gonna do tomorrow to make a difference in the world? What are we going to do to shine the light of Christ into the life of somebody else? What is our life going to look like? 
And the really interesting thing that Jesus shared with us is that you can't actually live until you die. You can't really live until you die. Now, to the people outside of these walls who have not accepted Christ, who don't know the scriptures, that might sound really strange, don't you think? That's probably not the line you lead with when you're trying to recruit somebody to Christianity, right? But for those of us that know the scripture, we know that Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10. He said, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. You can't actually live until you die. But what does that mean? It's like a riddle. It's like something that's a little hard to figure out. What is it that I'm supposed to die to? How am I supposed to die and then still live? How does that work and what does it look like lived out in my life? So today we're going to look at a scripture. It's just one verse. And if you know the scriptures, it's probably one you're pretty familiar with. I'm going to read it right now out of the New Living Translation. And this is very similar to some other translations that you probably have read. So if you've memorized this verse, you probably know it in this way. From Galatians 2.20, Paul says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's one of the most powerful verses in the letters of Paul. Now, if you're familiar with it, you may have read this verse a million times. And the danger in reading verses a million times is that we tend to take them for granted. We tend to not really hear the truth and the power that is behind them. So I wanted us to look at this same verse in a different version of the Bible. I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to change up the versions of the Bible that I read because if I've read it too many times, I just breeze right past it. And sometimes when I hear the word crucified or I hear the word cross, I actually tend to get like warm fuzzy feelings. Do you? Because the cross, crucifixion, has a good connotation for me. That's what Jesus did for me. It showed his love for me. I wear a little cross around my neck and it feels good. But the cross should not give us warm fuzzies. Because the cross was a device for torture. And so in this other version of this same passage of scripture, I want you to hear it in a little bit different way. So again, Galatians 2.20 from the CJB version. When the Messiah was executed on the stake as a criminal, I was too. So that my proud ego no longer lives. But the Messiah lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, I live by the same trusting faithfulness that the Son of God had. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, I want you to sit with that for just a moment. Because what we're going to do today is we're going to dissect this particular verse. We're going to look at it phrase by phrase by phrase. 
to see what truth God has for us today, our lives today, as we live out what God is doing, as we become partners with him in all that he is doing. So let's look at that first part of the verse. When the Messiah was executed on the stake as a criminal, I was too. So there's no warm fuzzy in this particular passage. Because it says the truth about what happened to Christ. He was executed. When you're executed, that's death for a bad reason, right? Executed on the stake as a criminal. And I want you to picture for just a moment what that looks like. Because when Christ was nailed to the cross, we know about the scars that were most likely sort of here in his wrist and in his palm. That's where the nail would have been driven through. Because that part of the human arm can actually hold the weight of the body. Can you imagine how painful? And they would nail him while he was laying down on the ground. And then they would raise up the cross, the execution stake, and they would drive it into the ground, dislocating his joints as the weight of his body weighed against the nails that were in his palms and his wrist. But the crazy thing about this, as horrible and as awful as it is to think about the pain that he would have suffered in this, he chose it. He chose it for you. He was not forced. He was not coerced. He willingly walked the road to the cross for you and for me. And when it says here, when Paul says, when the Messiah was executed on the stake as a criminal, I was too. Three really powerful words. I was too. And you see, Christ would have had the scars near his hands. We know he had the scars because when he appeared to the disciples later, he showed them. In particular, we hear about the story where he showed Thomas the scars, but he actually showed them all the scars. And the crazy thing about Jesus having scars is this. God was powerful enough that if he wanted to wipe away any sign of the, the crucifixion, the execution, God could have done that. He could have made it so that when he brought Jesus back to life, there were no scars. Have you ever thought about that? That's how powerful he is. Wouldn't that have made sense? Wouldn't that have been even more miraculous, like more whoa? There was not even scars. But how beautiful is it that he left the scars there? Because the scars, you see, are a sign of life after a wound. If Jesus would have just died and not come back to life, there would have been no scars because scars come from healing and healing takes life. So when Jesus came back to life and those scars were there because his body had been healed from the execution, I truly believe that God allowed those scars to be there as a reminder. A reminder that says, look how much I love you. Look how much I was willing to go through for you. Not only am I powerful enough to wipe away any sign of the scars, I'm powerful enough to choose to leave them there so that you can remember how much you're loved. When our daughter Tori was about five years old, 
I had been out on the back porch and I was planting flowers. I had all these pots and, and loved to plant. And when I came inside to the kitchen, I wanted to open up the blinds in our kitchen so I could see out into the back porch and see all these beautiful flowers that I had just planted. Now, in our house at the time, in our kitchen, we had kind of a bay window, and these windows were really tall, probably like nine or ten feet tall. And they all had heavy, heavy wooden blinds from the top all the way to the bottom. Now, a smart mother would have just twisted the little rod and opened the blinds. But I decided that I needed to have them all the way up. I didn't want anything intruding upon my visual out into the backyard. And so Tori is standing right next to me, about this high, and I take the string on the blinds and I begin to pull them up. Now they're heavy, really heavy. So I'm pulling and I'm pulling, and then I hear this really strange sound coming from above my head. And in what was probably a split second that felt like five minutes, I looked up and I see the blinds are coming off of their track and they're going to fall. And all I can think about is them falling, these huge heavy blinds on the head of my five-year-old. And so I decided to do a karate ninja move to kill the blinds. And I brought my hand up like this and got the blinds out of the way before they hit Tori's head. And then I looked and there was blood everywhere. And I thought, oh my goodness, where is the blood? Is Tori's head okay? And yes, Tori's head was fully intact. And then I looked down at my hand and I could see the bone of my thumb. Yes, I had that same reaction. I thought, that's not good. So Phil came home, because he was away at the time, and, and he got home really fast, and he took us all to the emergency room, and I had stitches in my thumb. And then when I went back to the doctor later to get the stitches removed, she said to me, you know, you're probably going to have a scar from this, but there's some creams you could put on if you wanted to diminish the appearance of the scar. But I didn't want to diminish the appearance of the scar. Because every time I look at that scar, all I think about is how much I love Tori. And how I would fight bears and dragons and lions and blinds to make sure she's okay. (laughs) This is true of Christ for you. I believe God chose to leave the scars as a reminder to you and to me of how much he loves us. Now, the interesting thing about being executed on the stake with Christ is that you get to also take part in the scars, So the life you lived before you accepted Christ. Some of you in here may have done terrible things. Others of you in here probably didn't live a whole lot of your life before you accepted Christ. So maybe you didn't do terrible things. Maybe you've done terrible things since then. But the beauty is that God doesn't say, I'm going to wipe away every memory you've ever had of the life you had before. He's powerful enough to do that. He could wipe away the memory of everything you've ever done that you shouldn't have done. But he doesn't. Because he heals you from that. And the scars are a sign of life, of healing. You get to bear those scars too. You are a part of those scars because you were also executed on the stake with Christ. Now, some of you might look at that and you might say, well, when I look back at that life I had before, all I feel is shame. Well, that's not what God wants. When you look back on the life you had before and you see the scars that are there from the healing that he did in your life, all you need to remember is that that is a sign of his love for you. Don't try to do away with it. Don't try to pretend it never happened because Christ already did away with it. 
you can tell others about who you were before so that they can know the power of Christ in their own lives. When the Messiah was executed on a stake as a criminal, I was too. The past is gone. The scars are there as a reminder of who he is of what he can do. So let's look at the next part of the verse. So that my proud ego no longer lives. Now, normally we use in place of that word ego, we will use in other translations the word self. But the interesting, about the, the interesting thing about the term ego is that actually it means your perception of yourself, your ability to perceive that you have a self. But this adjective that they use in this translation is proud. So that my proud ego no longer lives. So that my proud perception of who I am no longer lives. So in order to understand this part of the verse fully, we really have to deal with what pride is. We have to figure out what does God mean by pride. So I've got a little column chart up here. It's also in your outline. I think it's important for us to look at the worldly idea of pride compared to what God believes is pride. Because a lot of us get it wrong. A lot of us think that pride is what the world says pride is, which is, I'm better, I'm important, I'm entitled. That's really what the world looks at as pride. And that's why we Christians often struggle sometimes because the outside world says, well, they just think they're better than everybody else. But the interesting thing about Christians and pride is that most of us know that that worldly side of things is wrong. Most of us aren't going to go around saying or thinking you're actually better than everybody else. Most of us struggle with thinking we're worse than everyone else. So I believe God has a deeper understanding of what pride is and wants us to understand what that means. So God's definition of pride, I believe, is when you rely on yourself. When you believe that you can do it on your own. Now, what is it? Well, it could be a variety of things, but really what it is, is life. That you can do life on your own and you think that that's actually living. Now, some of you might say, oh no, I would never ever think that. Well, let's look at our lives for a moment. Do our lives say that we would never think that? What does it mean to rely on yourself? It means to think that you're responsible for making everything okay. And the bad thing is, is that leads to number two, taking God's place. I believe that when God sees pride, what he sees in us is this desire to take his place. That is where the root of evil comes from. Because that's what Satan was trying to do when he took angels with him. He was trying to be God. And so many of us in so many different ways will do this and then we will couch it in other things. We will say that it's okay because I'm just being self-sufficient and we'll wear that as a badge. Or I'm just not gonna bother anybody else. I'm just gonna do this on my own because I don't wanna be a burden. You see how we can make it sound really Christian? But when we try to take God's place and we try to do it ourselves, we fall into a really dangerous trap of pride. 
The next one is a lack of trust in God. When we are being prideful, when we have allowed that root ball to grow inside of our hearts, then we are saying, I'm placing my trust in myself. Now, we're really good at times at giving lip service to the fact that we trust God, but the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? What does our life look like when we trust God? So when we have pride, there's a lack of trust in who he is. Then also, a lot of us will struggle with entitlement when we're struggling with pride. Entitlement from God. Many of us will say, well, I'm a good person. I do good things. I obey God's commands. So he should do X for me. And sometimes we won't ever say that out loud. We'll just get really angry behind closed doors that someone in our life is sick, that a relationship fell apart, that things didn't go the way that we wanted. And the root of that is pride, believing that we're entitled from God for things to go a certain way. That is dangerous. And the last on here for a godly definition of what pride is, is a lack of surrender and submission. When I am unwilling to believe that I can't do it on my own, and I'm unwilling to allow God to do what only God can do, then I stand in pride. God never designed for us to do things on our own. God never designed for us to be in control. And so when we live in this type of pride, it's extremely dangerous for us and for our lives. Let me give you this verse from James 4. James said, and he, being God, gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't it interesting that God, who would give grace generously to anyone willing to accept it, that same God opposes the proud? Oh, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be anywhere on the oppositional side of God. But he gives grace to the humble. So let's look at what humility is. If my proud ego no longer lives, and we know what pride is according to God, then let's look at what humility is. The worldly definition of humility I think is interesting. Because usually anyone from the outside world looking in on someone who's humble or you're going to say I'm humble, it's usually you saying I'm worse than everybody else. I'm unimportant. They don't deserve it. That's not humility. Not at all. I believe that a godly definition of humility would be that we choose to rely on God. That seems pretty straightforward. But relying on God is often a lot more complicated than it sounds. Or should I say, we tend to make it more complicated than it actually is. Because those of us who like to wear the self-sufficient badge don't want to have to rely on him at all. And the interesting thing is, when you think about what it means to rely on something, what I like to think about a little bit, and maybe this will have a bad connotation for you, but I like to think about crutches. When somebody's leg is hurt, And they can't walk by themselves. They have to have assistance. Now, some Christians lean on God more like a crutch. Others are more like the scooter. And they're just like zooming through life with God. Either way. 
you're relying on something to help you get through because you can't do it on your own. And there is something beautiful about the person who is willing to say, I cannot do this by myself. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the people who are willing to say, I need your help, God. I can't do it on my own. And then I think a godly definition of humility is being in right relationship with God. This is where it takes the whole I am better, I am worse thing and brings it all into balance. Because humility actually is being in right relationship with God. It's knowing that he is the father and you are not. It's knowing that he is the savior and you are not. It's knowing that he is the one who chooses to send his Holy Spirit to comfort and to guide and you are not the one that guides. You are the one that relies on the father, the savior, the comforter of the Holy Spirit. And being in right relationship says, I know who I am. I am the daughter of a king. I am the one who God was willing to give up his life for because he loves me so much and only he can make me right. And that keeps you from the root ball of pride. It rips that pride ball out of your heart. And it says that I am the one who is loved by God and does not have to do it all on my own. Then I believe humility is trusting in God. This may seem like, well, duh. But think about it for a minute. Think about the areas in your life where you have not been willing to trust him. You know, it's difficult when we don't want to give that trust over to God. It's different to say I trust in someone than to say I trust someone. I can trust people. I trust my husband with all my heart. I trust my kids with all my heart, which is a big deal because they're teenagers. (laughs) That's a big deal. But I do not trust in them. Trusting in someone means that's where your trust resides. That's where it flourishes. That's where it abides. That's where its home is. Could my husband or my kids ever let me down? Yes, because they're human. That's why I don't put my trust in them, but I trust them. But God is where my trust can abide. It's where it is safe. It's where it's secure. And my life shows that by what I say and what I do and how I respond to situations. It doesn't mean that life won't ever be hard or I won't have a question or I won't need to go to God and say, why are you doing it this way? But it does mean that it will abide in him. And when something abides in something else, it can grow and flourish and change into something even greater. I don't just trust God because he's trustworthy. I trust in him. And then the last Surrender and submission. I believe that humility looks like surrender and submission. It is actually the most beautiful form of humility. Because a person that is willing to say, I submit to your authority. I surrender myself and my desires and my wants to come under the umbrella of your will. 
not my will, but your will be done so that your will actually is what my will is because I'm so in alignment with you. Now, what does this actually look like? Because I don't know about you, but I have heard lots of pastors preach on surrender and submission, and I feel like they just say, well, just do it. And then you're supposed to walk out and your lives are supposed to be changed. And I want to know how. How do I do that? If I've been a self-sufficient person all my life and I walk out these doors and I just know that I'm supposed to surrender and submit to God, but I have no map, it makes it very difficult. But let me give you an example. When I submit to my husband in marriage, what I am doing is I am checking his opinion on everything because I value his opinion and his opinion will guide where we go. And so there are times, if I need to check his opinion, I'll reach out to him. Hey, Phil, what do you think about this? But Phil, being the president of Mac, you can, you can imagine he's a little busy sometimes. He's in a meeting, so sometimes he can't take my call or my text message. So I have to wait. But I wait until I can check what his opinion is. What does he want in this matter? And then it may be a big enough situation that we have to talk several evenings in a row when he gets off work. We're going to talk tonight about this and figure it out. We may have some more questions. We're going to talk the next night about this and figure it out. And it may take some time. But a great example of submission is I am going to check what God thinks about everything. And if I don't get the answer right away, I'm not going to get mad at him because it's a relationship. And then I'm going to get to know God so well that I'll know his opinion on most things. Not in a prideful way, but in a way like I know Phil. I could tell you his opinion on pretty much everything. But surrender and submission is the most beautiful form of humility. And if God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, then we want to be humble before him. Because when we were executed or when he was executed on the stake as a criminal, so were we. So that our proud ego no longer lives. It's gone. And that pride has been rooted out of our lives. And so now we rely on him. We're in right relationship with him. We trust him. We surrender to him. We submit to him. And our lives look different because of it. So let's look at the next part of the verse. But the Messiah lives in me. But the Messiah lives in me. Oh, just think about that for a second. You see, we have a God who doesn't want to just walk alongside us. We have a God who just doesn't want to be just around us or hang out with us. That's the difference, friends, about what it means to live. He executes the sin in our lives. He executes the proud ego of our lives, but he doesn't leave it empty. He actually comes and fills it with himself. But the Messiah lives in me. How is this even possible? How is it even possible that I get to be a unique self? I get to be a unique and individual person, but the Messiah fills me with his Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting when you think about the story of Lazarus, if you're familiar with that. Lazarus was a great friend of Jesus. He was also friends with Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. Lazarus gets sick. Jesus finds out about it. He's a long ways away. He says, we're not going to go right now. We're going to wait a little while. And the disciples don't really understand it. And then Jesus says, okay, now let's go. It's a few days later. 
But then they get word that Lazarus is dead. And it doesn't make any sense to the disciples. They're like, well, you could have gone sooner. Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. And they get there. Lazarus is dead. They meet Martha along the way. Martha says to Jesus, I know if you would have been here that Lazarus would have been okay. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And then Jesus asks her, well, do you believe that your brother is going to be resurrected? And she says, oh, yeah, I believe that. In the, in the end, you know, I'll be resurrected. She's giving like a pep talk. And then he says, no, wait a minute. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And then he says, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And then he's about to give them an object lesson. So then he runs into the other sister, Mary, and she says basically the same thing. I know if you'd have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died, and we're kind of sad about that. And then he goes to the tomb, and he is overcome emotionally. And then he says, we're going to roll the stone away. And Martha's like, that's a really bad idea. He's going to smell really bad. He's been dead for four days. And then Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God today? And then he says a prayer. He says, God, I'm so glad that you hear me. I know you always hear me, but I'm doing this for the benefit of those who are watching. And then I'm going to give you just a little extra in this story, and it's free of charge. This particular miracle that he was about to do, raising Lazarus from the dead, was actually the messianic miracle. The Messiah had been prophesied about that if the Messiah came, he would raise people from the dead. Other people weren't doing that. This was the, this was the miracle that was going to show them he is the Messiah. He is who he says he is because he can do this and nobody else can. Four days, four days dead. Nobody else had let anybody be dead that long and could raise people from the dead. So then he says, roll the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And then he says these beautiful words. Because Lazarus is all bound up in these grave clothes, like wrapped. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Jesus is the resurrection and the life and people who believe in him will live even after they die, even after their proud ego is executed on the stake. And then from Romans 8, he says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now, this is the best news of all, friends. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you, not beside you, not around you, but actually in you. That changes everything. That means that when you are struggling, you don't have to reach for the spirit of God. You don't have to reach anything because he's right there. You don't have to go somewhere special. You don't have to do magical things. You just get the gift of the Messiah living in you, the same spirit that raised him from the dead. And we know that if the spirit of God can raise people from the dead, he can do anything. 
you're not alone. And it's not as complicated as we often make it because he is right there. When you've accepted Christ, the Messiah lives in you. So let's look at the last part of Galatians 2.20. And the life I now live in my body, I live by the same trusting faithfulness that the Son of God had. Now I'm gonna pause right there for a minute. The life I now live in my body, I live by the same trusting faithfulness that God had. Now I want you to think for just a minute about the fact that God sent Jesus to earth, fully man, fully God. Jesus had to live by trusting faithfulness. Sometimes we don't give Jesus credit for that because we just say, well, he was God. He already knew everything was gonna be okay. But when Jesus had to walk to the cross and suffer, he also had to live by faith by giving up his spirit to God. He had to trust that God was gonna do what he said he was gonna do. And you can live by that same trusting faithfulness. When you face trials, when you face temptations, when you face death, you can live by that same trusting faithfulness that the Son of God had when he walked on the earth. Think about that for just a moment. Jesus, being fully God, knew what was going to happen because Elijah and Moses had come on the Mount of Transfiguration and had told Jesus, here's how this is gonna go. But he still had to trust God to be who God was. He had to trust his father to do what his father said he was gonna do. He didn't get like a free pass from humanity. And if Jesus can face the nails on the cross and the raising up of the stake and the driving of it into the ground, and then he can stand up there and say, it's finished, and then he gives his spirit up to God. There is no greater step of trust than to be able to give your spirit up to God and trust that he's gonna do what he said he was gonna do. And so today, if there's part of your proud ego that still needs to be crucified because you've been holding on to it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes possible that crucifixion. There's nothing else you need for it. You can live a life where you rely on him, where you're in right relationship with him, where you actually trust him, you don't just say you do, and where you submit and where you surrender to him in a beautiful display of humility that changes things in the world. It changes things outside of these walls for people that you meet. It changes things inside of these walls for people that you know. It changes things inside of these walls. And the last part says, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's the perfect wrap-up to the scripture. When the Messiah was crucified, when he was executed, on the stake as a criminal, so were we, so that our proud egos no longer live. They're done, they're gone, they're dead. We're not bringing those back to life, but he is bringing you back to life. 
He brings you back to life because he lives in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. He loves you. He gave himself up for you. And since he gave himself up for you, you can give yourself up for him. Let me pray for you. Holy Father, thank you. We love you. We're grateful that you would choose to leave the scars so we can remember. We're grateful that you are worthy of our trust. We're grateful that you live in us and that your spirit lives in us every day, every minute of the night, of the day, of the every time. And God, we're grateful that we have that same trusting faithfulness in us because of your spirit. We can live like you did when we face the difficulties of life. Father, we love you with all our hearts. Thank you for Jesus and thank you for the Holy Spirit. It's in his name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.